Hello, listener. I'm Tabitha, one of the daughters of Richard J. Garlic, attorney at law. And I'm Tegan, her sister. You've probably noticed my naturally platinum blonde hair and Tegan's dirty brown roots. Yes, we are not from the same mother. Excuse me, what? I'm just now finding out that Wanda wasn't my mom? Oh, honey, Wanda wasn't either of our moms. Anyway, listener, Tegan and I are here to introduce a special episode that, frankly, neither of us can understand. Or even pronounce most of its words. Bless. Now, the last time Tegan and I ran into today's hosts, let's see if I can pronounce these hideous names correctly. Um, Hans Fluker and Jacques de Tamps and Tamps. Uh, we were doing a region-wide PR tour for pork steaks. Pork steaks are a unique cut of meat that originated in the Missouri Ozarks. And then, unfortunately, escaped to wider Midwestern vistas. Or so we told the story for the group, the European Complainer Society, in the very last Howard Johnson's Motor Hotel. Or, as the glitterati call it, a motel. Yes, and that's where we met these unwashed European existentialists for the first time. They insulted and berated us, but they also pay for our consultancy expertise in cash, so... Uh, Dad always said, we didn't hear you Europeans complaining when we saved your butts on Omaha Beach. <laughs> Despite this rocky beginning, Hans and Jacques offered us far too many of those glittery Euro coins to refuse their offer to introduce this special. So... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Noose Accusons, Men in Charge, a Hans and Jacques clip show. Cowardly done duttles of Richard J. Gallic. Hello, I am Jacques de temps en temps. And I am Hans Fluker. Welcome to our radio special of barely contained Euro Rage, formerly entitled Hans and Jacques Look Back in Angers. We were, however, compelled to change the title when we remembered that we were banned from setting foot in the town of Angers, France, ever again. The reasons why are unimportant. Let us use this opportunity to roll some clips, as the American DJs say. Our goal is to showcase the disrespect that has characterized our depiction on men in charge. Tegan and Tabitha Garlic, you get a break. Please do not eat the strawberry macaroons in the green room. As one of our first pieces of carefully disguised resistance art, Hans and I sold to your so-called men in charge a series of thinly-veiled Delusian self-deformations that frankly, spat in the face of capital. These trenchant critiques of the very idea of critique itself were disguised as a series of comedy sketches called Existentialists on a Plane. We found that a particularly kranker Kleiner Indonesia, an inexpensive and quick yet morally capricious scriptwriter from Indonesia, was a mutual friend to both men in charge and our project. We met Tony and Kevin at a local Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza and Arcade. 
palms were spat into, evil alien absinthe was drunk, promises were made. Yes, dealing with corpulent and satisfied Americans on jet aeroplanes was the way in which we were first introduced to you, as you will hear. The ever-present reminder of the shadowy clutches of death. Oh, Jacques, look how she avoids brooding over her incipient demise by hiding behind sleep. Her being toward death is inauthentic. In her dozing, she is in bad faith. She's not responding anymore. Do you think she's asleep, Hans? Poker, okay? What? Hey, what? Uh Aha! You've invalidated your freedom to sleep by allowing your wakefulness to be determined by others. All right, this is ridiculous. You're both totally inconsiderate. Oh, consideration. A luxury for the gutter bourgeois. Whatever. I'm going to find another seat. Stewardess, excuse me. Ma'am, you shouldn't be up. The fastened seatbelt sign is still indicated. Subsequent to that episode, Hans and I have occasionally tried to lure others into the waters of Leith. Just so that they could have a sense of what it would be like to wake up one day upon the day of their demise to no more days to wake up to. From there, our inept scriptwriter proceeded to write the backstory to how we got on the plane in the first place. Jacques and I have long held and published on the use of the flashback, the analepsis, as a crutch for sloppy writing. Anything for the corporate networks to hold on to their mentally flabby audiences, their couch pomme de terre. The following clip features the fascist arm of the military-industrial American Export-slash-X-Ray Syndicate. The TSA. Yes, in this clip, we meet for the first time a young TSA officer, improbably named Albert Coors, who later would become a symbol of all that is decadent and depraved in American policing slash the exercise of legitimate <laughs> monopoly of force. In fact... Effective translation presupposes that both sides wish to communicate in the first place. You should probably just place us in the nearest detention camp. Hey, my kid's going to camp for the first time this summer. Monsieur, uh, would you please step through the personal body scanner? You act with all this talk of persons as if you are casually familiar with the ultimate observer, such as Cartesian phenomenology would have it. However, this is a highly problematic approach. Will it alarms Blair, par exemple, if it detects my transcendental ego? Just step through, please. This must not be a machine for the detection of cosmic guilt. Or anxiety. You can claim your personal atoms on the far side, Monsieur. Again with this person concept. Now it's your turn to step through the scanner, Herr Hans. What happens if I refuse to comply? Are you refusing to comply? What happens if I refuse to answer your query? Are you refusing to answer my query? Do you know you would make a very good existential phenomenologist? Well, that's as it may be, but... Hey, Monsieur Jacques, uh, what are you doing? 
to check me off your security wrist list de control, you must probe every facet of my being. So, I'm disrobing in order for you to examine my bare facticity. Uh, that's not necessary. Please, Jacques, put your bare facticity away. And that portion of our history with men in charge drew to a close partly because of our rising indignation at the inaccurate and disparaging portrayals we were forced to present. But it also drew to a close because Hans and I were banned for life from all North American air transport, including helicopters, paragliders, and VTOLs. We were not even allowed to pose as dogs to fly via cargo compartment. We'll look at the next chapter of our legacy after this. At this point in our association with men in charge, we had Tony and Kevin over a barrel, as they say. We were contracted to perform in many more sketches, but we could no longer carry out the signature existentialists on a plain shtick. Everything must have a signature X, it seems, and that is why the writers of the long-running sub-serial of Men in Charge called Rocket to the Future penciled us into the very first episode. It was clear from the first ten minutes of Rocket to the Future that the entire concept would be a failure without some element of radical leftist criticism to liven up the facile presentation of action, ray guns, and bug-eyed monsters. One pleasant memory, indeed the only pleasant memory I can recall from this experience, was the ability to explore the phenomenology of radioactive name tags. Here, give a listen. Meanwhile, at Space Force headquarters, where two foreign-sounding existentialists sit behind a one-way mirror to comment on the goings-on... So, Jacques, we have Greek rhetoric to thank for analepsis, the flashback, yes? So easy to tamper with characters' lives this way. Yes, Hans. But did you detect the limp American tendency to blame radiation, should strahlung, for their failure to assert radical agency in identity formation? Jacques, I am German, so I should speak the German words. N'est-ce pas? Si tu veux, mon cher espèce de crétin. But Farley Stubbs, now Professor Shadowy, in the thrall of the radioactive name tag, does he not shed awareness of his being in beingness, his être en l'état d'être? He is now shadowy, yeah. Also, he is weak from those synthetic snack cakes on which he breakfasts. The roles we were handed were, to say the least, difficult ones. We were to be the gods of the Rocket to the Future universe, overriding each character's autonomy with the devising of absurd situations in which to dump them. No puppet string was too taut for us to pull. No humiliation was too great for us to impose on the rocket crew. And no studio drink cabinet was tough enough to resist modern European crowbars. However... The regular Rocket to the Future announcer soon became a kind of Yoko Ono in the announcing booths. She attempted to try and turn Hans and I against each other. 
In response, we fought back in the only way we really know how, by emphasizing the superiority of dark European bread over disgusting white-puffed American bleach flour loaves, as you will hear. Rocket to the Future is also brought to you by bread. Bread comes in so many forms. Well, two forms. Fluffy white sliced loaves and soft white dinner rolls. No, actually three. Hamburger buns, too. No, no, wait. Four. Hot dog buns. There's so much you can do with bread. You can eat it standing up or sitting. You can fill up on bread before dinner when mom's back is turned. Also, it's a good way to use butter. And nothing holds in sandwich grease better than bread. Ah, but what about the dark, grainy breads of Europe? The firm, heavy loaves of Albanian bread are like the thick and grainy tears of a lover whom you once rejected, but then who laughs when you beg to return to her. Or to him. Or her and him. The white breads are the tears of the pale boy. Or pale girl. Or who is denied evening television or internet access. No! Rocket to the Future is sponsored by pure white, squeezably soft, perfectly shaped bread. There's no room in the future for that existentialist bread. Put down that truncheon radio, man. Actually, I'm a woman. We will leave now and let your antiseptic radio halls ring with our derisive laughter. <laughs> it will be no surprise to hear that the production crew for this so-called space opera, bah, it is not even a space libretto. The production crew quickly began to irritate Hans and I. We chafed under their need to make everything in the script about characters other than us on the rocket ship. And we were displeased with the way in which Marx's arguments about surplus value was ignored by the deployment of an endless series of junk food and toy ads. And soon we've left Rocket to the Future to enter what would turn out to be our wilderness years. We shall return with that chapter after this. In 2019, Jacques and I were rescued from running a San Francisco cult full of Eurotrash youths with such names as Victoria and Edmund. We were contacted by the heirs of the Center Square and brilliant American comedian Paul Lind. He must have been the virile progenitor of many children. They commissioned us to both write, produce, and act in a documentary about one of Lynn's best-received holiday television variety specials. We called this a deconstructive analysis of the 1976 Paul Lind Halloween television special. It is important to be succinct in one's namings. Here you will listen to radio documentarian Thor Igor Rasmussen asking Hans and I for trenchant analysis of Paul Lin's opening monologue in the special. Since the appearance of Kiss is a dramatic turning point in the narrative of Paul Lin's 1976 Halloween special, I'm sure I don't have to remind the listener of the basic plot, 
In the pre-credits sequence, snarky curmudgeon Paul Lind, played by Paul Lind, camps his way through multiple holiday get-ups, starting with Santa, until his housekeeper, Margaret, informs him it's Halloween. Roll opening credits! Let's listen in to Lind kick off the opening monologue. And now, the Paul Lind Halloween special! Thank you. Hi, I'm Paul Lind. Well, somebody had to be. He is Paul Lind. Somebody had to be. Discuss. On this, my comrade Hans and I must part company. Due to his recidivistic essentialism, Hans believes that if there had been no Paul Lind, it would have been necessary to invent him. Yet his interpretation is, I confess, maladroit and unsophisticated. Oh, my colleague is blinded by his own anti-phalogocentrism. He believes that the transgressive facticity we label Paul Lind could have been the big other to Peter Marshall, host of Hollywood Squares from 1966 to 1981, and primary antagonist of Lind, if that is his real name. Yet yeah. even Peter Marshall is not Peter Marshall, Hans. He was born Ralph Pierre Lecoq. A name only a Lichtensteinian could love. If we sublate the difference between Hans' assertions that somebody did not have to be Paul Lind with my historically fetishized speculations that everybody must at some point be Paul Lind, then we are back at where we started. E.g. at the facticity of the existence of a Paul Lind, who lived between the arbitrary tensed calendar loci of 1926 and 1982. Clearly nothing has been solved. I'm glad. And soon after, we were delighted to be joined on this special by Adrian Zlody, Bohemian architect. Boys, we've got a special guest or perhaps guest host for the next segment. It's the creator of installation art you've known and loved, such as Pretty Pretty Princess Fort Knox and Cedar and Shale number 12998067541112. Welcome, Adrian Zlody, Bohemian architect. Oh, Please call me Adrian. Ignoring all that for a long moment, Adrienne, we've invited you on this Men in Charge Canadian Independence Day special to discuss the set design of the 1976 Paul Lind Halloween special. Indeed. I am some kind of an expert in the area. My habilitationsschrift at the University of Dredgast was entitled Burndis, a counter-masculine reading of the set design for Wichipu's Gloomsbury Manor. And that's precisely where we are in the narrative. Paul Lin's housekeeper Margaret has rescued him from the chaos of Halloween in his neighborhood by driving him to Gloomsbury Manor. Welcome to Gloomsbury Manor. <laughs> Won't you come in? What's my second choice? Surprise! It's Witchy Poo from HR Puffin Stuff. Discuss. The character of Witchy Poo represents the insurgent voice of disembodied feminism. Ah, but mon ami, does not Witchy Poo say to H.R. Puffin Stuff, shut up, you pot-bellied iguana? She is also an intersectional speciesist. Not necessarily. 
I contend my original interpretation is superior, based as it is on the foundational work of Professor N. M. Nightsoil. I would like to put the sound design of the sequence into historical functional context. The synthesized horror track here anticipates a Jason Voorhees like. You were hired to analyze the set design. By the way, here's your check. Thank you. If it is the set design I must focus on, I would prefer to leave Gloomsbury Manor and instead focus on one of the next scenes, Dandy Don's Diesel Dorm and Diner. Ah, you're referring to the setting for Paulin's alter ego of the rhinestone trucker in the central part. According to philosopher Peter Singer, the real red meat of the special. It became clear that this alliance would have political importance. Not only did our deconstructive analysis of the 1976 Paul Lind Halloween television special topple an Italian prime minister from power... Not that it takes so much to do so anymore. Agreed. But this alliance with other similarly bitter and caustic Europeans led us to the formation of the European Complainers Society. This new NGO seeks to deflect and distort relations between the United States and the EEU. In the following clip, you'll hear founding members Adrian Zloty, Didier Vandage of Disgruntled Belgian Talk Radio, and Jacques and I speaking about topics critical to the world economy. The European Complainers Society. Today's topic for the European Complainers Society is what are the secret powers of American corn? It is true. As a holy new world vegetable, this corn of which we now speak puts all of Europe at a disadvantage. It knows us, but we know very little of it. Pa! Who gave you the authority to choose this month's topic, Vondage? Au contraire, Adrian Zloty. The topic has been forced upon us by all manner of recent news. Indeed. Because of the need to broadcast this dire news 24-7, my own radio program, Disgruntled Belgian Talk Radio, has been dislodged from the broadcast slot that I, Didier Vondage, worked many years to secure. You are no longer in your Thursdays at 4 a.m. slot, Didier? You have my sympathies. Yes, simply browse these American newspapers. USA Today? This is like sickly sweet toffee for the mind. Sacre bleu! Is this so-called sports reporting written by 16-year-old girls who are not able to secure a job at Tiger Beat magazine? <coughs> Please do not even bring up the automotive reviews section. Have any of you read the obituaries? This is where I get some of my best ideas for installation art. I hear this obit section of the newspaper is very similar to the comics page back home in Waldo vom Fens, Germany. We did, in fact, go on to discuss Korn just to satisfy the listener's mind. And as a result, our standing with your TSA has never been higher. Although we are still not allowed on aircraft flying over American, and strangely enough, Lichtensteinian airspace, we have recently been allowed on a hovercraft. Pah! 
existentialists on a hovercraft, the universe truly is absurd. Men in charge. The real reason that Germany and France, and not Belgium, control the European Union. Well, listener, this is the last of our performances for you. We know you see us as monkeys dancing for you near the organ grinder's music box, and the big public radio American fat cats are pulling the strings. It is, in fact, the closing piece of those performance pieces, each a symbol of resistance art in our greater critique of men in charge, and, by extension, all of big public radio. So in the time left, rather than satisfy your basal schadenfreude, we would like to present how we, Hans and Jacques, would have run men in charge if we had not been barred from it by the capitalist hegemony. Jacques and I have come up with innumerable ideas for men in charge episodes and sketches. Shall we bring in Tegan and Tabitha, if those are indeed their real names, to assist? I don't understand. We're already here in the studio. We've been here the whole time. Oh, sorry. It was a cue, not a proposal for action, Tegan, sweetie. Without further ado, here are some of the brilliant... And very funny. We don't have to explain why they're funny. And very funny sketches you missed because you kicked around Hans and Jacques and instead let Tony and Kevin run this show. To begin, Howard Zinn's People's History of the End of Pompeii. On the Aeroflot plane with leftover fish. Death by a thousand spoons. Vern Wyndham sued the army and won. America needs quitters, too. Raspberry jam on the brakes. The carport sale of your dreams. Join our gun cult today. An overflowing aquifer of loathing. My van pool was miniaturized. A rubdown with vodka and vinegar. The disgruntled muttering episode. Why Walter is the guiltiest name. A bloodthirsty harpsichordist. The corn-based episode. A night at the opera with John Kenneth Galbraith. Bob's bad day at the mortuary. Never miss a good bank fire again. Can't we concede this is funny? Whose anonymity is it anyway? But how do you define minimally adequate? Today, we're using the big boy oars. We had a future as castrati. Why Thomas Edison was the lamest Avenger. The sophistry of toddlers. The day it rained scotch. An infinite regress of German saunas. The doom that missed the exit to Sarnath and ended up near Colonial Williamsburg. And many, many more. We can assure you that all of our ideas were of equally high quality as this sampling we have just presented to you. We have wasted enough time on these corn-munching, white-bread-loving, anti-socialist Americans, but they will come to regret they did not listen to us. Mark my words. 
Soon you will need our absurd comments to discover the unhappy truth about your carnivalesque and unserious government and media and all that corn. And we will not be there for you. Tony, I am kind of speechless in the sense that I have no idea why the studio asked us to broadcast something that's directly critical of all the hard work that we do. And I don't even know who these Hans and Jacques Foreigner people are and their homemade deodorant lingers in the studio here. But regardless, yeah. we have to thank the cast. Sarah O'Hare, Nisha Schramm, Tony Flynn, Kevin Decker, Kendall Feeney, Amy Laskowski, Ryan Weldon, Jody Stewart-Strobelt, and Rowan Flynn. We'd also like to thank the four people who left the door unlocked. Carrie Boyce, Vern Windham, Nisha Schramm, Nancy Roth, Savannah Rothy, and the only man on the lacrosse team, Brian Lindsay. <laughs>